Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. As always, I have your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and with me is Adam Pawatic. Today, our guest is Daniel DeMonte from Flatiron Building Group, Inc. He is the partner and CEO. Welcome aboard the podcast, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So as always, we start these uh, we start these podcasts with a little bit of background history on how you got into what you do at Flatiron. So where'd you start? Well, started went to university, studied architecture, and uh, made my way into the uh, development and construction world. We've been trading for since two thousand and one. I've been on my own since uh, two thousand and six, and just recently brought a partner on. And we're recognized in two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen as uh, Canada's fastest growing companies, five hundred wow. companies. How many employees do you have? We have close to forty full time. Wow. Okay. I mean, before we get into the to Flatiron, let's just. Were you an architect by trade? No, no. I, I couldn't pull a line to help me. I can build it though. I can look at a three dimensional. I like the building part of it. Yeah. And so, how did you get into? I mean, what was the motivation to start your own company? You know, I worked on job sites when I was growing up. You know, doing the old high school university slug, and I really fell in love with the building industry. The one thing I liked about it, going on sites, is that you never had to really be behind the desk full time. And I always liked the autonomy to walk around and went from there. You know, spent, some, spent many years on job sites and worked my way into the office, working my way up from a one-man show to a 40-man crew. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a hell of a you know, roller coaster ride at times. Is it more or less stress being a one-man crew or a 40-man crew? I think it's more of a 40-man crew. <laughs> you know, there's the autonomy knowing where you're going and what you're doing. And that was, uh, you know, it was a peace of mind. But, you know, when you're the... Uh, you're wearing so many hats, it's tough. So we built the company up over a period of time. And, uh, you know, we've done some really good work. How did you um, come up with the name Flatiron? Favorite building. The one in downtown Toronto. Yeah, the Wellington. Yeah, the, uh, it's my favorite. The Goodman Awards building. Mm-hmm. It continues to be a landmark. The details are fabulous. It's not, uh, it's a boutique commercial building in amongst all these larger ones. So that's how we grew the company. And we try to hold by the standards of detail and quality. For anybody interested in what it looks like, we'll throw a photo into the show notes because it is a very beautiful And you've seen it. It's at yeah. the corner where it's Wellington, where Wellington and King kind of split out, right? On the sort of the east end. You know, the pictures are always looking west and you can see the down skyline behind it and yeah. see it regularly in promotion and tourist videos and things like that. Yes, you can. Do you know the owner of that building? I've never met the owner. There's been a few since I incorporated, yeah. but... Uh, client of ours. I won't say his name because I don't know if he'll want me to say his name or not. But yeah, <laughs> but moving, moving your office there would be just the most yeah. uh, climactic point of Flatiron's history, though. Yeah, if you could owning it would be better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is yeah. he selling it? Probably not. No, knowing him, but he paid too much. Well, I, I wouldn't say he paid too much. <laughs> but he paid a lot for it. He paid for the premium because of what it was. And same as you, I think he probably has been in love with it for as long as he's been in the city or in the industry. So. Part of that is an emotional purchase. I, I suspect it would be for you as well. Yeah, I was surprised that the name was actually available back then. Really? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it's iconic. There's a competitor in the States, Flatiron Construction, but Flatiron Building Group is ours. Perfect. And you're running with it, clearly. So before we get into what you're doing now, why don't we talk about the growth and what's driven that growth and how and why do you think that you've become, as you said, sort of one of the fastest growing companies in the industry? You know, understanding what people want and always trying to improve. Our industry, you look at it as like a commodity. It's construction. But as you brought in as a general contractor or a construction manager, you have to really add true value. And by adding that value and understanding exactly what's required from the end user's perspective really helps us be a true building partner to the design team, the landlords. And you know, at the end of the day, you want to make sure your client's really satisfied. And you know, 
I'd say that we have a really good track record of making sure that the end user is. So that's, that seems simple, but then if it's so simple, how come everybody's not doing it? Well, I'll tell you, back when we first hit the fastest 500 growing uh, in 2017, I knew we weren't doing things the way I wanted them to be done. Uh, as you grow a company, you continue to try to do a, self, a self-reflection. And I brought in two consultants. One of the consultants stayed on for nine months and uh, has become a partner. So as of January 2018, Julie Phillips is my partner. She's the president and partner, and she's been great. She's taking it from perspective of not just construction. She's taking about how to actually run an organization, but you just are a construction and construction managing, management company. So the, in the last uh, you know, 15 years, what's the, what project gives you the most sense of pride that you've worked on? Our office. Our own office. Is that the one you, that you overspent the most on? <laughs> no, no, we were on time and budget. Okay. Um, no, what it is, is you have to practice what you preach. And we moved into an industrial area, and this, I walked into the space, which was completely bare bones. The developer was in the midst of just kind of getting a new roof on, and it was completely derelict. And I saw the vision. So if you take an old industrial building that has open web seal joists, but masonry walls, it has a wood ceiling on top, we popped in skylights, we painted the walls, we have a games room in the back, it's open concept. You know, it's retaining the, you know, as a lot of our clients want. They want to retain a culture, they want to retain good talent. So by implementing that in our own organization has really helped us as a company. And it's the continual evolution of continued growth and change. And we have open spaces, we have meeting rooms, we have telephone rooms. We have a games room in the back. We've put a patio in on the side so our, our team could actually uh, you know, enjoy the time that they spend together. And also, the area we're in has a regentrification part of it. So they have a brewery going in the back, which could be dangerous, you know, Friday nights for our team. <laughs> but they have a small little cafe going in the front. And we love it. And I think that's my proudest project that we've done. I mean, the, the bar going in the back would be great and that nobody will ever leave your company, but they won't work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to put ankle bracelets on them to make sure that they're restricted going on the patio. Yeah. Put their pictures up in the bar, say, do not serve these yeah. people. Put them right on the dartboard. Yeah. yeah. Stay away. It's a good, uh, I mean, a good uh, reflection of, I guess, what you offer as a company in that office space need, in, this, you know, in the current market to retain talent needs to reflect the values of the company, the culture of the company, and be attractive. You know, people, employees need something more than just a paycheck to show up for. Mm-hmm. And I guess what you're offering is building out office space for other companies that can then do that in the, in the war for talent and, and for landlords, of course, in the, in the war for tenants. Yeah. You know, every single client has their own means of their objective of moving into new space. Um, we find that when you look at the newer space, you know, it's, I'd say it's kind of, hospitality meets commercial because there's a hospitality perspective. You want people to be able to congregate. We'll say that that's your lobby. Well, that's maybe your lunchroom where you can all get together and do fun things. You know, one thing that we're doing at Flatiron, you know, we have word of the day. We have quotes of the week. We try to bring it on. I brought a longboard in the other day, so we're going, I'm going up and down the aisles with a longboard, which people are just kind of looking and laughing, but they love it, right? It's part of the overall culture, and that's what we're trying to do. I think a lot of the tenants out there, especially in the Toronto area, they need to find something that kind of helps retain or, or attract that new uh, culture and that new talent pool because it's, it's different. They want a lot of new and exciting an environment to work or a community, if you will. Well, you know, so I have two different thoughts in there. One is I think you're seeing that because the tech industry kind of drove that first, right? I think they kind of originally, you know, you think about any of those major tech companies, it was all open space, wood, you know, wood beams, table tennis, all that kind of stuff, or ping pong tables, and just, you know, bring your dog to work, like kind of really kind of yeah. friendly. But that was only associated with, 
the tech industry. I actually worked in one of those in the uh, the first dot com boom. I worked in a trunk carpet factory, which has ceilings that are on maybe, Liberty. Yeah, yeah maybe thirty five feet. All kinds of toys in the place. Nobody wore anything resembling a suit in there, and it was at the time a little unusual. It was very cool. Did you get work done? Yes. Yeah. I would yeah, say. So yeah. like, I think that's the old mentality. People think, well, you do that, but then nobody does any work. But if they're at the office for 16 hours a day because they just love being there, maybe they are getting more work done. Yeah. But you know what? I'm going to actually counterpoint that. The people who have actually really created that movement were artists, photographers. So back in the, we'll put the Toronto Carpet Factory, when I was in that space, it was predominantly artists and photographers. They needed the space and they did a live work application. So when you find that any place that goes through a regentrification and creates that, the people who started are at the root of it. They're the people who don't have the money. The people who are just want to do want to do a good job and are kind of struggling. And trust me, I remember walking in and people were, you know, giving themselves a bath in the local washroom, a quick. And those are the people who started the movement, as far as I'm concerned. But what happens with them? They become, you know, more successful. More successful. It's an incubator, if you will. But that's going back in like 1996. Before that, that's well, and, and so and then fast forward where I was going was you know there are banks that are now adopting this sort of environment. I know of multiple banks that have ping pong tables and it's all very dressed for your day. And if you've got no meetings externally, wear whatever you want. Like they're all transitioning this way, ultimately because to attract the talent that are expecting this type of environment, they just you, you kind of have to you have to transition yeah. that way. Yeah, a gray cubicle doesn't really match that atmosphere. I don't know. And what are you? Are you seeing that well, uh, everybody is going that way, or is there like sort of bifurcation of the market where you know people are saying, "No, no, you, we're a suit and tie company, and we sit in cubicles and put your head down and be quiet," or is everybody kind of gravitating towards? I've actually read that people actually have dress up day now. So everyone Tuesday is the day you have to wear a suit and tie, right? <laughs> Instead of kind of doing the old. I, I believe it. I like that idea. Full inversion. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you when you look at the and you know it's technology that's driven where we're at. Because you're mobile, you can take your laptop or your tablet and go to a, a station and work. And you know every generation works totally different. And the ability to be mobile is such a key component to the success. Like I remember studying when I was in university, we talked about just-in-time offices. Well, predicate on the fact they wanted to save money on real estate, right? You don't have the big offices anymore, and you rarely see them anymore. But some people are just trying to go back. Some so that's what I was going to say. Like, I've been hearing rumors that that's it's they're almost reverting back to that style where everybody gets an office. Mm. Any sense of why that is? Like, what's the you know what the hardest part is? How many times does someone come up to you when you're uh, working away and starts talking? When Aaron's role in particular, he's uh, an epicenter of <laughs> conversation. Day, so every day, yeah. He would probably take an office with a locked door on it uh, if he could. Yeah. <laughs> Blinds and everything. Well, yeah. now, now they have little tags you put on the back of the chair and says, I'm busy or you know, do not disturb. Because it's just, you see someone and you want to be kind and you want to talk to them and engage them. And I think that's just human nature. But now we have to curtail the human nature application and let people do, well, know, get to work. We're jamming so many more people into the same space. Like I, I don't. What are the numbers? What's sort of the average per square foot per person? Do you know off the top you, of your you head? You know that varies and I'd have to confer to one of my design yeah, partners sure. on that. But I know it's getting well, tighter and tighter and tighter. Tighter. Ours, well, I, I, I know it's high, right? Because some of our floors, we, were, we have large servicing administration departments that are, you know, they're, they're sitting on sort of like big desks just mm. next to each other. There's no cubicle sense to it. But I can't remember what, what it, I think it's 80 square feet or something like that, like per person, which is tight, right? That might be wrong. I don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll scratch that out. Um, yeah. One of the things you're finding though with these open spaces, you know, quiet time, and acoustics. And when you're in these open spaces, the acoustics is so key. And that's such a huge uh, growing market in the commercial world because you need these special ceiling panels to cut down on the noise. and Because everybody's talking on the phone. 
Yeah. Or communicating or coordinating with each other or or, or doing podcasts. Yeah, or doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're acutely aware of sound effects here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in your in your big office redesign, what uh, style did you go with? You know, the, one of the reasons we love our office is because you can look at the actual building components. You can look at the mechanical and the electrical, how the interface is at the ceiling. So I would say that we did an open, it's, we did a hard concrete floors, we finished them. We have an exposed natural wood ceiling with open, open water steel joists, which we left raw. So you can see what it looks like. We put six skylights in the space, which bring natural light in. It's uh, something that we would say that it doesn't really replicate anything we've built because a lot of our stuff's in commercial building. This is an old industrial space, which is actually going through a regentrification, and you can see it. And you, people, it's near a trans, uh, you know, the subway line. People walking around, and it's great to kind of see people go through it. I did that when I, it happened when I was at Liberty Village back when I first started my career, and you can see, you know, how it slowly changed and morphed into this cool little place. Like there was a small little cafe, and then there was a small little uh, place that did sandwiches, and then you can see it kind of transform. And I'm seeing it now, and it's really cool to be a part of. Yeah, when I started there, the same at that location, it was 19. 19- 98 or 9. Mm. And at that point, Toronto Carp Carp Factory was very cool. But the surrounding area, not so much. It was kind of an oasis. It's yeah, Sully's Gym around the, str- around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It, it um, was, but now you drive through there and it's uh, just night and day. Oh, I have no idea what they're getting for rents, but it was a fab. What they had a vision and they've seen it. And now that we have a developer that's building the first, you know, post and beam commercial space in Toronto, which is just, I think it's great. It is kind of topical having this uh, this conversation now in that First National is also in the planning stages of a of a large move. We're going to be moving to 16 York, which is, for anybody familiar with Toronto, right beside the Air Canada Centre or Scotiabank Arena, I guess as it's now known. And so I guess I would also pose the question to Aaron, who's the planning committee for this. You know, what uh, what's in the works for our space? You know, it's still still to be determined, but the discussions are interesting. I, you know, that's why I'm poking your brain because it's it's you know we're a financial institution and we do have you know Adam and I are wearing sort of a suit today, and most most of our staff are kind of formally dressed, not suit and tie, but but you know you got to wear a dress shirt and dress pants. Mm-hmm. But how do you? Is that the culture? Is that what you want to maintain? How do you go, and how do you think future? What, what's it going to be like in ten well, years? Well, you know, I'd be happy to assist with these. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> the podcast is a way of getting free advice. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it is. I, mean, I think it's just an interesting conversation for corporations just to have that discussion about who are they, what do you, what, what kind of a talent you're trying to attract. Can you stay sort of quote unquote old school or more formal and still attract the top talent? Because is it, is it just so attractive to be working in an environment where you can wear? running shoes and bring your dog or whatever it is. I'm using that sort of as, as symbolic, but, and is it just going to go that way all the way where every institution, whether it's, you know, I mean, I hear Scotia has, has taken that approach, you know, downstairs, RBC is using WeWork and it's a really kind of a relaxed environment. So banks are going that way. If all major banks are going that way, doesn't that mean that basically everybody has to go that way? Yeah, who's left to be formal? Well, yeah, that's it, right? Uh, one of our, one of our partners and competitors, uh, Kingset Capital, they are, they are suit and tie. Like they, it's white shirt. And I think just recently they passed a, a you know legislation or whatever where you can wear an, a slightly blue shirt and that's it right everybody has to wear a suit and tie with a white shirt and that's just they they decided that's their culture and I'm wondering if that's just slowly going away or because everybody's going the other way something like that's actually becomes attractive because there are people out there that hey I want to wear a suit and tie every day I don't want to go to a place where everybody's got you know flip flops flip flops <laughs> and shorts and, uh, I think you know. it has to parallel your corporate ethos right and yeah. what sort of what sort of image you want in the industry. We've done a lot of work for Scotia, and you're right. They, the space looks great. It's open environment, and 
we are very proud of what we've done. And they've also include interconnecting stairs, which kind of makes everyone feel that they can go and, you know, communicate and talk about what, I guess, projects or whatever they're working on to be collaborative. And, and that's such a key component, you know, being collaborative. And we find that more stairs and it's a booming, that's a booming part of our, our market as well. But how quickly can you get the stairs in and what are they going to look like? And they don't want to be a big encumbrance to the overall design, but it's a key component to vertical integration. And we support it. We think it's great. And we yeah. try to make sure that we bring the right people to the table to understand exactly what sort of detail and what sort of look you're, you're going for. And uh, the work we've done there is just really stunning. Well, for another uh, historically formal group, I mean, I love visiting lawyers' offices. You walk in, it's all dark wood, and you can really see where all the fees you've paid have gone into, into this office space. Are they still sticking with their tradition, or is it uh, shifting there we, as well? We did, we did a project for Wildeboard Delise recently, three floors, and it's stunning. It's open, it's the reception desk is just all these wonderful uh, geometric shapes. And uh, they, they did a fabulous job. And they're, they're doing a, potentially a couple more floors. And we're happy to be part of it. You know, that's the part which I believe with technology, it's changed on how we overall approach the building process. And when you look at how, you know, AutoCAD came in, you don't become intimate with the drawings. And what I mean by that is when, you, we, when I started... AutoCAD, sorry, just for the, for the listeners, what yeah. is that? AutoCAD, and for me, for well, frankly. Well, AutoCAD, yeah. is, people don't even, I don't know much, it's a CAD drawing. So what it is, it, you do architectural drawings or electrical or engineering drawings or any sort of drawings on the computer, which allows you to give you a scaled application, which gives you an overall plan, and then you can pull from that and you can do your sections easier. But when you look at a project and you become intimate with the details and sketch it out and understand the built, how it's actually built from the various components, that's when it, you build it in your head as the designer architect. But sometimes we're so rushed in our industry from a perspective of getting the lease signed and then getting the permit going because there's so many permits and you know, we're out of this particular lease. It's great when we can actually come to the table as a building partner and give you know, the client and the design firm and whomever you know, our knowledge on how to build it and how to save money, and how to get around certain you know, obstacles, because there's always obstacles. The other, we actually mentioned this previous to recording, but I don't know what the answer is, but U.S. clients, because the U.S. in general seems to be 10 years ahead of us in all fronts of real estate. I don't mean just design, build, or anything that. Virtually all fronts are about 10 years ahead of us. So when U.S. companies come here, and they're looking to build out their office space, mm. it's going to have a high component of, you know, I guess, Americans visiting. Well, what are they doing I guess as a window into the future, maybe of where, uh, where we'll be. Well, I think that when you look at our neighbors to the south, the one thing that they're so familiar with is the AIA contractors, American Institute of Architecture. They use this particular contract for their commercial work. We have a contract called CCDC, CCDC2 contract, which forms the parcel of our contract. The first thing I ask American clients is, is if they're familiar between the difference between the AIA contract and the CCDC2. And there is, there's many different I guess, deliverable items that they're not aware of. And when we explain that to them, it becomes clear and concise what they're getting, what we're going to provide to them. And is there a regulatory mandate that you have to use this Canadian version of the contract? Well, you know what? There's not. Sometimes the, our clients prefer, because it's a corporate policy, that they have to use this particular contract. So we have to make concessions. But in the concessions we make, we have to let them know exactly what you know, the added service is from the CCDC2 contract. What does that mean? It means that what is design intent? So design intent says, we're expecting you to build this particular space on this drawing. But they may not have all the you know, details completely defined. Well, in the AIA contract, it's our responsibility to help them define that and cover that in our overall price. 
where are other, you know, I guess clauses in the in the CCDC two doesn't indicate that you build what you see. So you know you want to make sure you bridge that gap. You try to make sure the transparency is at the beginning. We've coined the phrase, you know, you can hate me a little now or a lot later. So we have the conversation up front, and it's having those difficult discussions that we've done over the last three years that have really propelled us with the client satisfaction. And we do we do surveys. We ask our clients. We ask the designers how we did. And we find that by doing the self-reflection is such a key component of our success going forward. Because as I said, I brought Julie Phillips as a partner of our organization. So glad that she decided to join us because we're looking at process. You know, the, I can ask both. I can ask three people. You know, from First National. You know, how do you how do you start a project? Now you may all have the same sort of understanding, but you don't have the same steps and procedures. We've taken that information over the course of two years and we've now have a process for our team and how we how we do our deliverables and how we have those discussions with our clients when things are really hectic and saying this is what I think day one is and this is what we believe day two is. Now for example, I talked about the acoustic panels on the ceiling. That's a growing, growing rapid market. Cost effectiveness, I'm not quite sure. Sometimes it may what's specified. You see these big lights that also have a SDC rating, which is a sound transmission coefficient, which is an absorption application, what the cost is and what the timing is. Because if you have a 12-week contract and it's 16 weeks to get this particular fixture, you better have that conversation with the client now. Setting expectations. Oh. Communication. And if you look at our taglines, communicate first, construct second. Because if we're not communicating, we're not constructing. And if I'm not making sure that all, if our team's not making sure that all our shop drawings are in line and we get quick turnaround, nothing's being delivered to the site. Nothing's no, being delivered to the site. I mean, I love that you've, you've built that right in, like communicate first, construct second. It's, it's on the back of, of Dan's card, and, and that is your culture. Mm-hmm. You, it built, is. you built that right into your culture. Yeah, we had to, and it wasn't easy. You know, it's, it's, a self, it's self-reflection. You know, it reminds me of, of, of the story. There's a husband and wife, they're going to a cocktail party, and the husband's getting ready, and he's tying his tie, and he's looking in the mirror, and he says to his wife, he goes, man, Look at me, I'm, I'm getting fat. And look at all the gray I have. And he looks at himself, oh man, these pants are sagging on me. And he looks at his wife. And you have nothing kind to say? She goes, your eyesight's pretty good. You know, <laughs> you, 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 gotta, you, gotta, you gotta look at what you are doing well and where you need to improve. And it was, it was not easy to do. For Flatiron, we had to take a step back to grow forward and we continue to do that. And that's why I think that clients are the new Flatiron, if you will, because we're not the same company we were when it's a one-man show or a 10-man show, we're 40 people. And we have, a, we have people that we've training, we continue to mentor, we love the talent we have, and we just got to keep going forward. And that's the new message we're getting out there. I'm actually going to say I'm glad you switched to the word people because I've actually met several of your, of your female employees at, uh, at events. So you know, rather than the, the version of a 40-man group, it's a 40-person group. <laughs> it, it is. And, and, yeah. and it, you know, Julie Phillips, president of the organization, we were so happy with all the people who've, who've joined uh, Flatiron over the last little while and continue to grow and mentor. And that's the key component. It's not easy to you know, go to a job site, 15,000 square feet, and basically you're transporting a whole production facility onto a floor, which is in downtown core. And how do you manage that? You have so many different people to talk to yeah. and satisfy. You mentioned hectic days in the job, which from my understanding of construction, I've never been actively involved in it, but it seems like there's a, a very high element of you know, hectic days. How much has the, the recent volatility and costs caused friction with the, with the groups that you work with? Whether, well, obviously it's not your fault, and I know it's defined in the contract, but how do you manage that element when you've got these costs that seem to be pinballing around quite a bit and not in favor of the low side? Yeah, they're going the wrong way. Well, you know, the one thing that we've pride ourselves in is that we always look for new 
trades. We always look to find who's doing differently and how we can actually improve our place in our uh, world. We try new trades. Sometimes we'll succeed, sometimes they'll fail. We make sure that the leash is short when they're new, and we make sure that we bring them in. We vet our trades. We have them to, the, to our office. We talk to them. And that's paying dividends. But what that does is that we aren't going to just go to the same people over and over and over again. Although we love the fact that we have great alliances, you know, the client's advantage has to be that you know, we're giving them the best value based on the robust marketplace. Some of the numbers are up there. I've heard some of them. But at the end of the day, what we know we can control is you know, adding new talent to our team, not only internally, but externally. And by doing so, we're actually we're competitive. We're very competitive and get good product. What, I mean, maybe, maybe just off the top of your head, or provide a range, but what is like on a per square foot cost for a for the full office retrofit? I'd say right now we're ranging, we've done a project $80 a square foot. We just recently completed a project at $450 a square foot. $450? Wow. <laughs> wow. Marble uh, everywhere? It just, just, it's just a clean, beautiful space, all hard surfaces. And that depends, I guess. I mean, I, I know putting in the, um, the stairways, the connecting floors, like that can be very expensive oh, too. Oh, it right? can. It most definitely can. But you know, but you also have the finishes around it. It's not the stairs. And we did a project where we had this beautiful veneer and we had inserted lights in the walls and it really just is a breathtaking uh, show piece. So it's taking the time to make sure that that's all done and done properly and making sure the lights are delivered and the veneer's okay and how it matches and how it's cut. There's so many small little steps to do one task. And there's some companies that would, you know, Millwork, for example, that you can get them to integrate everything. You're paying a premium for that, so we have to make sure that we bring the right people on so they understand the logistic application. Our industry is constructing, but it's also logistics. Logistics is such a key component to what we do, you know, from the person on the loading dock to the elevator, yeah, right, to the cleaner and, and everyone else. You have to make sure you have a good working relationship, and we promote that with our team. Well, given the demand on you know, third-party labor now. How tough is it to keep job sites constantly active? Active or clean? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess both. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 you have to. You know, in Ontario, we have such, you know, we have, we have some very good safety laws and we have to continue our look going through a core certification right now. And it's the health of the uh, organization, which is key. And, and if it's, I, have, I have a saying that if you go on a job site, if it looks good, it is good. If it looks like a mess, chances are there's something going wrong. So we promote cleanliness with all our trades, promote it with our team, just to make sure you keep a nice, health, and clean environment. How is the new lean policy, lean legislation, impacting your business? You know, it's coming into play. It's, what we need to do is we need to look at certification. So when we get an invoice in, for example, and we're saying we've completed 50% of the project, for example, well, that has to go to the prime consultant. And the prime consultant will have to clarify with their team that if we are actually billing 50% in accordance with the actual built part. But now with the lien law, you have so many days, and I, I can pull something up to tell you exactly what the timeline is, but you have to make sure you have that in advance of the five days before you put it in on the 25th of the month. And so that you have certainty of when they, you, either the prime consultant or the, consult, or the end user can say no. So you go back to the trades, and they have an opportunity to kind of push the paperwork and resubmit it. It's the timelines are pretty strict, and they're they're much tighter than they used to be. Because I think previously it was forty five days from receipt of the of the invoice. Yeah, can we can we back this up for lean laws one hundred and one or yeah. lean laws for dummies <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. you want, or to, even to even further it. back? So yeah. what is a lean? Let's do yeah. that. Yeah. So now I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, of course. Right, so I'm going to give you the layman's terms Please. of what a lean is. 
So a lien basically preserves someone's opportunity to ensure they get paid, either the contractor or the subcontractor, from either the end user, the tenant, or the landlord, whoever they're doing the work for, or developer. So what happens is that we take 10% hold back on all our projects, and that particular money is set aside to ensure that if something kind of straggles on, that the, the landlord or the tenant has money to pay for it. What's happened sometimes over the years is that people don't pay their trades, or people don't pay the contractor. So it gives us an opportunity to protect our, our livelihood, if you will. Sometimes, especially with the trades, if you think about all the labor, they have to pay based on the collective bargaining agreements, you know, weekly. And that's a lot of money out of pocket. So we, they want to make sure that they get paid. So there was a, there was a big push to protect the sub-trades and the, and the contractors. And the new lien gives that sort of protection. So, for example, the owner, if the owner receives the invoice, the invoice has to be submitted you know, to the owner. And then the owner is required to pay now within 28 days of receiving the invoice. It was 45 before, I think, right? Well, all the terms change. Some people have their supplementary conditions that say that they don't have to pay for 60 days or they don't have to pay for 45 days or 90 days. And that may be a corporate policy in the commercial world, but it, it contradicts you know, the, the, the laws. Yeah. So you know, after the owner gets uh, supposed to be paid within 28 days, the contractor is responsible to pay the subcontract with seven days after receiving it, which we've always done. You know, you have to make sure your trades are on your side. Yeah, and happy, sure yeah. No, so no. It, just, it just sped up the, the time frame from when the invoice is received to when money has to be actually transferred. It does, but there's also a provision in it to ensure that if anyone has any concerns with the, the invoice, if you will, the client or the owner has only so many days to send it back to the general contractor or the construction manager to ensure that uh, it's revised. And if it's not, then they have to pay within the 28 days. And we're still going through it because it's such a... So there's a, like a dispute resolution sort of sort of structure to it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I personally, I've seen it where, you know, silly kind of where the um, you know, the contractors were on site doing work. I can't remember, they may be replacing windows or whatever. But they were driving their trucks all over the landscaping and the grass. And so they drove away and left the you know the basically the whole front yard ripped up and the apartment owner said I'm not paying you like or come back and fix my landscaping like you've just destroyed all my front yards but the trades is saying no like you owe me for my work I did the work right like it wasn't written that I have to keep your grass clean or whatever and of course a lien's filed on and first national supposed to be you know financing part of this and we can't until the lien is disputed and these guys I don't know where it ended up but I know they were they were going to battle for it right cuz it was substantial like the the cost of the landscaping to fix it was like you know $20,000 and the cost of the contract was like 30,000 so it was you know the guy was basically doubling his expense just for you know a couple windows to be replaced because the guys drove their trucks all over all over the land Landscaping, so I mean, I guess that that doesn't that not really applicable here, but well, it can it, cause some problems when you have those types of disputes, right? It, it is applicable because when you're hiring a, con- a general contractor, construction manager, there's different levels, you know, and you can find someone who can probably do it for cheaper. But are you getting someone to actually protect your end product and having the safeguards in place to understand exactly how you approach that? Sending them a letter of non-performance, having the conversations, doing your due diligence to protect your client. That's what we do. That's part of the logistics application that you know we've perfected. And that's the key for success. The last thing you want to do is avoid your move-in because there's someone who isn't performing their duties. Now, as I said, I mentioned earlier, we try to use different trades. And by using different trades, there'll be the odd person that's on a short lease, which we have to say, you know what, you're not performing, you're off. But having the proper paperwork in place in the meetings before that's in their contract that this is what we're going to do, that's where we find success to kind of give you a good price point, and then at the same time, make sure that we fulfill the mandate that you've hired us for. 
And you know, there's times when we is remember that memory said there's the adage that you can hate me a little now or a lot later. Having that conversation with the client, saying, "Listen, this is what's happening. This is the obstacle. These are the solutions, and this is where we think we're going to go." They mean okay. We have to maybe move, push this person off, or maybe consider moving this in a different phase. But at the end of the day, when you come up with a master plan, to an ever changing. Oh, it's, it's, it's organic, isn't it? Like it's constantly, constantly fluctuating. Well, you're constantly dealing with ambiguity in our industry and understanding how to safeguard against the ambiguity is what makes us, you know, perform. And having those conversations and having the ability to say, you know, this particular light fixture in your main boardroom won't be ready because of X, Y, and Z. How do you feel about that? Are you planning meetings already? Oh, well, we can push those off. We're not moving to our other space till later on. Our key discussion points for success. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the hardest part of your job? Which drink I'm gonna have at the end of the night? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I tell people they ask me how I'm doing. It depends on the hour. I'm now determined that I take it like a game of golf. We have 18 holes plus the 19th hole. Every hole's divided into 25 minutes with a five minute break. And any time during that, you know, the course of the day, things can go kind of you know a little crazy or hectic. But then there's some good little run and some fun. So I'd say that you know in jest, but. I'd say that the, the thing that gives me the most satisfaction is hiring the right people and seeing them succeed. I like seeing our team do well. I like seeing at the end of the day where they're happy that they've joined Flatiron and they see exactly what we're trying to do. You know, one of the biggest, I guess, obstacles in our industry is closing projects out. You know, coming into a space, getting all the deficiencies done, getting all the municipal approvals completed. And of course, what the landlord wants, they want their documentation and warranties. So what Flatiron came up with about two years ago was a Flatiron delivery bonus. So by the time I factor what it's going to cost me to keep going back and back and back, which we have done in the past, it costs us money or lost opportunities. So what we did now is that we established a Flatiron delivery bonus, which has three targets. If we hit those targets, everyone in the bonus gets a bonus. Sorry, everyone in the company gets a bonus. Now, Not everyone you, in the company or everyone that worked on that project? Everyone in the company. Huh. So... You know, our admin will not see a job site. They get a bonus. We're putting the closeout documents together. Everyone works together to get it out on time. They get a, we all get a bonus. The driver gets a bonus. What that's done is that it's kind of pulled everyone together to get, you know, to the, the bottom line or to the finish line. And what that does to the organization is great for the culture. Now, we're not perfect, but we're beating the, we're beating the standards in the industry. Yeah. Because every single person is aligned. And, and look, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not an obsessive amount of money, but, but you know what? It's a nice night out with your, with your uh, partner. It's a, you know, go out with your friends. Yeah. That's what it is. And it's a thank you. So where, where, if you're back here five years from now, what would we be talking about? Where's Flatiron going now? First of all, you can say, what a great job we did on your new project. At York. <laughs> <laughs> we plan on continuing to grow a nice steady growth. There's no need to see an excessive amount of growth. We'd like to be recognized best managed companies. Most recently, I was nominated for Entrepreneur of the Year, which was nice. But, you know, you're again so many, so many great industries, so many different people out there making a real difference in what we do and the technology. It's nice to them just be nominated. I like growing the company. It's fun. And it's fun to see our team succeed. And, and not only, and in a lot of ways. You know, remember when you're in high school, you're at the lunchroom with your buddies having fun? And you're just always loved going out after you had a spare. I kind of like that environment in our organization. When it's time to work, you work. When it's time to have fun, you have fun. And make sure that uh, our team gets out and enjoys what they do best. And then sort of along that same vein, then, you know, what kind of, what are you seeing in the, in the office market? So over the next five years, what kind of changes are coming? 
Well, what I see currently happening is that there's a lot of space that will be coming on market with all the new build in Toronto specifically. But even if you look at the, you know, across North America, people are taking, let me use the example of the carpet factory, which we referred to earlier. It's an old post and beam building and people took it and it did an adaptive reuse. So it changed its, changed its use entirely to, you know, office space. Now we're looking at these old office spaces, which would be classified as a class B, if you will. You know, they're, they're taking the class B spaces and they're opening them up and exposing the structure and having a industrial loft type look at some points, right? They're painting all the ceilings black. They're painting them all white. They're changing them. They're giving you that vibrant look. You know, a lot of the stuff is kind of, again, hospitality meets commercial. They want that space. They want people to really enjoy it. You know, they're not just looking at this is the place you come and work and you go, you go, you go. The culture is, is continually being disrupted. And as a builder, we're trying to change, you know, the paradigm of what people think of, uh, of our market and how, you know, useful we can be as a building partner. Because I guess uh, Toronto right now is in the unique position of having, or unique to Toronto last little while, of having a lot of brand new build office coming on stream. And so I guess the existing buildings have to do something to make themselves attractive, relevant, and everything else, because the new builds are a blank canvas for you know, for the, for the builders I and mean, old buildings that get creative, I suppose. Yeah. We, we have a, a client GWL who's uh, taking um, space in the parking garage, turning it into bike racks and uh, facilities for their tenants to use, you know, and it promotes the pedestrian application, which is, I think, fabulous. And, and, and just continually to, to evolve the, the lobbies are being changed. The, you know, their uh, washrooms are all being modernized. So there's a lot of, you know, work on that and their, and their podiums are being altered. You guys can see it. You can see downtown, you have great bars that probably weren't there before. They're reinventing the space and, you know, repositioning it in the marketplace to promote retail as well, which is an amenity to the, um, to the tenants. And that's part of that's a byfunction of, or byproduct of just the number of people that live in the vicinity now, right? 20 years ago, bars downtown would be, you know, dead on weekends. But now on a Saturday night, even in the financial district, still packed bars. Yeah, well, our planning act, our planning act is, is actually special in, in North America. City of Toronto did a fabulous job. Did they introduce No me? one's ever said that on this podcast. Well, it, it's true. <laughs> you know, they, they looked at there had to be a nice balance between work, live, and play. And you, you see it more with the millennials and, and how, they, how they get from point A to point B. I have a Presto card. If you ask me if I had a Presto card 10 years ago, I said, I used to do my time on the subway. I'm not doing it again. It's the best way to get around. It's actually great because no one can get in touch with me on my cell phone either. We're changing how we live, work, and play in Toronto and outside the GTA. You have clients in Mississauga who are doing similar things that they're doing in downtown Toronto. They want to look at their close to the transit. So I think it's a global, you know, who am I? You know, I have a construction management firm and who am I to comment? But what I can see as we evolve, it's really exciting to be in Toronto. It's probably one of the fastest, if not the fastest market in uh, North America. That's a great note uh, to end on. It, it is a very exciting time in Toronto. We've got a little bit of different ending today. You know, as usual, we want to thank our guest, and uh, we do. And we want to thank First National for powering the podcast, and we will thank them as well. But I want to highlight an opportunity for anybody that's looking for some exposure. We are going to be offering individual episode sponsorship opportunities. If that sounds interesting to you, please reach out. Our content information is on the website. And uh, now we'll jump into the more usual ending. Dan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your knowledge with all the listeners. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.